Now, Father God, I pray that you would speak your word to your people today and even speak it to those who aren't saved. I pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that it would bear much fruit. Do it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please meet me. In the book of First Peter, we began several weeks ago um, a series in which we're just walking verse by verse through the book of First Peter. I'll tell you why here, or we'll remind you as to why we're doing this in just a few moments. I, I, I don't know why this is on my mind, but it has nothing to do with the message. But um, about a week ago, I was with my uh, nephews, and my seven-year-old nephew, Aaron, he just started telling me jokes, and they were actually pretty good. He says, to, he says, Uncle Brian, what, what do you call a janitor that's just come out of the closet? Like, no, no, no. He says, what, what, is, what did the janitor say when he just came out of the closet? He says, well, what did he say, Aaron? Supplies. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the message. I just had to get that out. That was actually quite good. I laughed for about an hour. So we told jokes. Funny. Anyways. Okay. Verse 22, 1 Peter chapter 1. There's no segue here. Pick me up, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another, underline this phrase, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Verse 24. Now, in verse 24, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers... And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Eugene Peterson. He's a prolific author. And uh, for years he was, uh, uh, he served as a pastor as well. He's in his 80s now, he's retired uh, but the story is told at the time in which Eugene Peterson was uh, visiting a monastery. And he was hanging out with some of the monks, and they were just kind of walking along. And as they were walking along, um, they, they came to a, a graveyard, and Eugene Peterson noticed a freshly dug grave. Just kind of this, this huge hole. Eugene Peterson asked a question we all would have asked. He says to the monks, well, well who just died? And the monks responded to him, no one. And then Eugene Peterson asked a question we all would have asked, and that is he, he then followed up by, by, um, by, by saying, well, well, why did you dig a grave for no one who's, who's died? And the monks responded, well, that grave is for the next one. And Eugene Peterson says, so is this the tradition? You, you, you always dig a new grave not knowing who the person is that you're digging it for? And he goes, absolutely. Well, why do you do that? Eugene Peterson, I mean, the monk said to Eugene Peterson, 
they said, well, it helps us because as we walk the monastery, three times a day, we pass this graveyard and a grave just simply dedicated to the next one. And it helps us to remind ourselves of our own mortality. That at some point, I'm the next one. It helps us to deal with something uh, that many of us, we, we, we know it's coming, but we just don't want to talk about, and that is death. I love what Woody Allen says about death, the great writer. He says, I don't mind the thought of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's all of us. The truth of the matter is we're, we're transient. In fact, that's why in our text, I love it, Peter likens us to grass. Here for a moment and gone. Now, the good news is, is that if you're in Christ, you need not fear death. In fact, I love one of the, Im- the images. If, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, just, just read through the New Testament. Begin in Matthew. And just As you make your way through Revelation, what you'll, what you'll discover is there's a metaphor that the writers of the New Testament use a lot of times for death. It's the metaphor called sleep. That, that for the believer, death is not a period, it's a comma. It's a pause. We're, we're going to pass, we're going to die, but it's as if we're going to sleep because we will wake up in the presence of our maker. And we shall behold him face to face. Now, i got to be careful here because... I don't want anyone leaving here going, well, man, I'm, I'm saved. I got my fire insurance. So, so I've been rescued from hell. Now that means in the name of Jesus, I can live on earth a hellish life. No. No. There's a reason why, again, I've said this almost every single week in our series here. There's a reason why when God saved you, he did not immediately call you home, but left you here, as in the words of my grandmom and her contemporaries, to occupy until he comes. He, he left you here on purpose. And, and what he left you here for is, he wants you to be an exile. So that we're in 1 Peter, and one of the things we learned is you cannot understand 1 Peter unless you understand the word exile. Over and over and over again in the book of 1 Peter, he's calling us exiles. You're exiles. You're exiles. And we learned the very first week that Peter is not writing in English. He's writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for exile literally means the close stranger. It's an oxymoronic term. So that it speaks of someone who lives geographically and spatially close, but they are clearly from a different place. It's, it's really how we would use the term immigrant. It's a person who may live in the same neighborhood, but the way they talk, the way they act, their culture, their, their, their practices, their preferences... Tell us that even though you live here, you ain't from here. Peter says, now live that way. Now, what does that mean? When God saved you, you became a citizen of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. 
so that God saved you and you became a part of the kingdom of heaven, which means your ultimate loyalties are no longer to the kingdom of earth, but now to the kingdom of heaven. So that before you're Republican, you're Christian. Before you're a Democrat, you're Christian. Before you're Mexican. Before you're black. Before you're white. You're Christian. You must always subject your political party, your culture, your class, your ethnicity. My blackness must always be subjected to my Jesusness. Because I'm Christian, I'm Christian, I'm Christian. Watch it. And fundamentally, as we learned two weeks ago, to be Christian means you're different. There should be this sense in which, just like I would look at an immigrant in the natural who may be living in my community and go, you're not from here. That's obvious. So it should be equally obvious for those of us who are in Christ that people on our jobs, people in our neighborhoods, people on the college campus go, you're different. So if you can go four years through Cal or four years through Stanford and no one is ever curious about you. That there's just this, there's, there's just this pervasive sense. Yeah, he's one of us. There's no way you're living the spirit filled life. If, if I can put a for sale sign in my neighborhood and move out of my neighborhood and there's not any sense of, yeah, that's that guy, that Luritz family, they were different people, not better than, different. Then did I really represent Jesus well? If, if the way I work, this is Daniel, Right? Daniel chapter 6, what we call Daniel and the lion's den. They, they, they look for something. They look for something to get him fired. Can't find it. Now, most of us, we just lost right there. They said the only way we can get this guy is as it relates to his relationship with God. We, we, we got to come up with a law to get him to stop praying to this God. Oh, and by the way. We know exactly what time to catch him praying to his God. He goes home noon every day, opens up the curtains, and he prays. So we'll be waiting for him right there. Because they just knew this guy was different. And watch it. Him being different didn't hurt him on the job. He's getting promotion after promotion after promotion after promotion. Daniel teaches us you can love God, get promoted, and make a lot of money at the same time. Those two things, those things are not mutually exclusive. Let me, let me just say this as a rhema word. To be different doesn't mean I now use company time to do hour and a half Bible studies. Is this, is this microphone on? Is it, is it working? Different actually means I come to work on time. I take an hour lunch break if that's what I'm supposed to be taking. And I'm actually working and not playing solitaire or checking Facebook. That's what it means to work well. Is this microphone on? So he says, he says, you're different. You are, you are absolutely different. Now, 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 this is what I said week one. I want to just put my cards on the table because this is important for us. The reason why I chose first Peter, I just think the Lord is just speaking to me. Brian, this is a word 
that people in general need to hear, but people especially living in Teslaville. The Bay. We, 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 we live in this affluent place and you can get here and there's just this sense of mama, I made it. The weather is unbelievable. The topography is unbelievable. And I think it's important for us living in the bay that you hear God say, don't get enamored with it. This world's not your home. You're just passing through. And I hope you got a bigger agenda than increasing property values. Naked you came into the world, naked you shall return. I've done a lot of funerals, I've seen a lot of stuff, I've never seen a U-Haul at a cemetery. It ain't going with you. So we've got to confront this. Because materialism, I think, has a strong foothold here in the Bay. It's, got, it's everywhere. But you need to understand, when America was first settled, they came to the East Coast, and they settled it on the East Coast for religious reasons. When they came to the West Coast, they didn't come to the West Coast for religious reasons. They came for gold. And I think that spirit of materialism is equally pervasive here. And we've just got to look different. So that, we said two weeks ago... Exile is spelled D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T. Now, we come to our text today. Peter is now wrestling with, what do you do when you put a crowd of folk who've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, you put them together in this greenhouse called the church. He now says to these saved people, impregnated by the living word of God, talk about that in just a few moments, who are now in community with one another. He says, listen, exile is spelled D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T, but because you exile are in relationship with other exiles, your relationship with other exiles should announce to the world equally D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T. In other words, The world should be able to look at abundant life and go, that's different. The way you treat each other is different. You're not gossiping about each other and you're not slandering each other and you're not stabbing each other in the back and you're not going onto Facebook and saying mean things about each other. And when you slip up, you're actually apologizing to one another. You're forgiving one another and you're, look at how they love. So if Jesus in your life, if you are a mean, nasty, cut you off early person before Christ, and you are a mean, nasty, cut you off person after Christ, then is Christ really in your life? The fundamental way I know I'm saved is not measured by the length of my quiet times. But it is seen in how I treat other people who have been made in the image of God. Jesus is to have a profound effect on how I treat others. Now, this is key for us. Because all of us sitting in this room, we've got a deep longing that at the same time is equated with a deep frustration. 
Gilbert Balzekian, in his wonderful book, um, Community 101, he says, all of us long to know and to be known. In other words, we have an incredible longing, and that longing is community. We long to be in relationships with other people, but at the same time, tell the truth, people are our biggest frustrations. I often tell people, pastoring would be easy if it wasn't for the people. If all I could do is sit back and read books and study Hebrew and Greek all day, I mean, that would be wonderful. Now, why is this? Because when sin entered into the world, God says, don't eat of that tree. Adam and Eve ate of that tree, which means they acted independently of God. What's the first thing they did? They hid from God. So that relationship was hindered. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us before sin entered the world, they were naked or naked as they say down south, naked and unashamed, which means there was vulnerability there. There was transparency there. Now sin enters the world, what's the first thing they do? They go and get them some Louis Vuitton fig leaves. They hide from one another. The vulnerability is gone. So that the picture Genesis 3 paints for us of sin is that the primary way in which sin wreaks havoc is relationally. Now, God says, what the enemy has destroyed, I want to repair. So the enemy has destroyed relationships. I'm going to create a place that is supposed to announce to the world... It looks different in here. This is the place where you can have relationships repaired. This is the place that's supposed to be different. But the problem is the church doesn't look much different from the world. I mean, if you do studies on divorce, the divorce rate is just as high in the church among saved folk as it is out in the world among unsaved folk. So explain this to me. How can you have two people filled with the Holy Spirit, impregnated with the living word of God, get divorced over irreconcilable differences? How does that work? So I just want to fire a shot, and I say this completely in love. I believe that the Bible does say, look, Jesus does give us a loophole, Matthew chapter 19. You can't get divorced for sexual immorality. But if a couple comes to us and says, we're filing for divorce because of irreconcilable differences, we're going to work with you and work with you and work with you and work with you and work with you. But if that thing goes to divorce, we're, we're just going to be forced to say, we got to talk about this as elders because that's not compatible with the gospel. So God saves you, puts you in a church, and in that church, he says, this is supposed to be the place that announces to the world different. If you're married, your marriage is supposed to announce to the world this is different. Marriage is hard. I get that. On July 3rd, 1999, Corey married an incredibly selfish person. And I married an incredibly selfish person. God says, boom, I knew that. Work it out. Work it out. So how do we deal with this? Peter says something very interesting when we come to our text. And when you look back at verse 22, he begins by saying, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, verse 24, excuse me, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Look at what he does. He connects 
our need to love others with the word of God. Here's what he's saying. He says, you got saved. God now drops you into the context of a local church. He now wants you to manifest the unconditional love he has for you horizontally with other people. And he says, you need a new operating system. And the operating system that is to inform how you treat and love other people is not the movie theater. It's not the world. It's not the television set. It's not the talk show. It is the word of God. So he connects the word of God with how we are to love people. And specifically, he says, there are three things about the word of God that is to shape your relationships with other people. The first thing he says about the word of God is found in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. First thing he says about the word of God is that the word of God cleanses you. It purifies you. Now, the Old Testament equivalent of this is consecration. In the Old Testament, when you were consecrated, here it is, you were always consecrated for something. You were consecrated for worshiping God in the temple. Now that you were consecrated, you could go to certain sections of the temple. Now that you were consecrated, you could have a certain uh, dimension of your relationship with God that was experienced. You were never consecrated to brag about being consecrated. God never purifies you for you to announce how pure and how clean you are. He says, no, now that you've been purified, now you can love others well. This is important because in the natural, I don't know how to say this. It's hard to have relationship with a person who smells. Y'all, y'all too deep. Y'all, 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 y'all. If your breath ain't right, it's hard for me to have a relationship with you. Now, I'm gonna, I just want to back up a little bit and pray for you from a distance. Now, my wife and I, we sat on subways. New York City, people sit on subways, ain't smelling too fresh. I've literally seen people back away from Why? They're not clean, and that creates distance. What's true in the natural is true in the spiritual. If your spiritual breath is funky, and you're a gossip, and you lying on folk and you slandering folk, that's spiritual halitosis. So when you do that, don't, don't at the same time wonder, I ain't got no friends. Well, your spiritual breath stinks. So what you need, this, this word's too urbane for y'all. What you need is the mouthwash of the word of God. You need the soap of God's word. Now, now here's our problem. Here's our problem. You got me some soap here. We love to study the soap. We love to debate the soap. We love to discuss the soap. We love to blog about the soap. We love to have classes about the soap. We love to get degrees in the soap. We love to do everything with the soap, except for actually open it up, squeeze some out, and get cleansed with it. The soap of God's word, it's good to study it, but it's not ultimately given to you so that you can just study it, blog about it, debate over it, get a degree in it. I know a lot of degreed people in the soap of God's word who got funky breath. Are y'all getting this this morning? 
The word is given to you to cleanse you. So how does this work? My wife, my, my wife will tell you, you know, I've just, over the last couple of years, I'm going, okay, I, I, I'm trying to get into this. How do I cleanse myself of the word of God? My wife will tell you, you know, I just, we just take prayer walks. And one of the, one of the things that's helping me, I, I want to be very clear. Uh, I'm not arrived. I haven't arrived. I'm still traveling with you. But one of the things that's helping me is to take the word of God and actually praying the word of God. So I just want to encourage you. Memorize the word and then pray that word. Use the soap and watch what it does. So, you know, when we lived in New York City, I'd, I'd do it here too. You know, I'd leave my apartment there on the Upper West Side, 78th in Amsterdam, and I'd go on these prayer walks, walk right through Central Park, go, go to the Upper East Side, come back about an hour walk, and I'm praying passages like Psalm 15. Psalm 15 says, Oh Lord, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And I'll just stop right there. Lord God, I want your presence. I want to sojourn in your tent. I want to dwell in your holy hill. And, and I'm just praying that to God for a few moments. And then the rest of the psalm, he goes, Here's the kind of person who can sojourn in my tent and who can dwell in my holy hill. He says, Next verse, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So I pray that verse and go, Oh God, I haven't walked blamelessly and I haven't spoken truth in my heart and I haven't done what is right. And I'm praying that back to God. God, I'm confessing my sins. And then next verse is, here's the other kind of person who experiences my presence, my, my presence who, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil against his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend. I'm going, oh God, I'm, I've got some horizontal relationships that aren't right, which means you and I aren't right. And I'm confessing those things to God. And then the next verse, who, uh, um, you know, who, um, who doesn't dishonor God and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Lord, align our affections. And then the next verse, he just talks about who swears to his own hurt and does not change integrity. I cannot walk in unintegrity and experience the presence of God. So I confess breaches of integrity to God who does not put out his money at interest nor takes up a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And I'm praying those things and praying those things. Well, guess what? God's clean, cleaning me up, which means the person who left the apartment. Now, when I return, I'm a different person. Because I've used the soap of God's word. So friends, if you're having quiet times. And you're not relating well to other people. Something's wrong. We need to go from just reading the word to actually cleansing ourselves. With the word. Second thing he says about the word of God. So he says, I want you to love each other earnestly. The way you do that is the word of God. And the way that that helps your relationships is, Brian, it purifies you. It cleanses you. Second thing he says about the word of God, it animates you. That is, it gives you life. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the, here it is, plain language, living and abiding word of God. He says, God's word is living. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two. There is life in the word of God. Why is this? He says, because the word of God, which gave you new life, came from imperishable seed. Unlike all of us in this room, in the natural, we came from perishable seed. 
Now, I see some kids in here, so I can't get into the mechanics of it. Hopefully, you had that talk some years ago about how you actually got here. Okay? I remember saying, explaining this to our middle son, Miles, when he was about six years old, just the mechanics of it. And, you know, mommies have eggs, daddies have seeds. And he opened up the refrigerator and goes, mom has one of those inside of her? Uh, No son, no, no son. But anyways, so we were all born of perishable seed, which means this, because we're born of perishable seed, we're perishing. We're getting worse and worse and worse. Here I am in my 40s, and I know that to be true. Ever looked at yourself in the mirror and goes, my, 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 what is going on up in here? Up in here. Hairline is moonwalking. <laughs> Every year I got more face to wash. <laughs> Ever noticed this? Now, some of y'all may not know. You know, us guys, you, know, you sit down in the barber's chair. When I was young, all the attention was up here. But now I've noticed he spends a little bit more time cutting up in here. I'm like, well, that's too much information, I know, but weight gain. And you look in the mirror, especially you get in your 40s, you go, perishable seed, perishing. But what does Peter say? To be in Christ is the exact opposite. Because we are born of imperishable seed, you got saved. You were now impregnated with that imperishable seed which is the word of God, that word is growing in you, which means the older you get in Christ, the better you actually become. Because the imperishable word of God is in you. It is animating you. It is living inside of you, which means this, the older I get in Christ, the sweeter and better my relationships with others should become. So how can two people who've been impregnated with the imperishable word of God all of a sudden stop speaking to each other? Doesn't make sense. Thirdly, he says, not only does the word of God purify you, it animates you. But thirdly, he says, the word of God is enduring. Verse 24 For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. I love it. Verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever, forever, forever. So here's what what he's saying here is you're born of perishable seed. You're perishing. You were born again by imperishable seed, which means you will live forever. You will endure forever. Why? Because the eternal enduring forever word of God lives inside of you. So that one of the things he wants us to understand by implication is perishable man needs to submit himself to the authority of the imperishable word of God. It's the imperishable word of God. So here's the deal. 50 years, 100 years from now, they're not going to be talking about you and I anymore. But 50 to 100 years from now, they'll still be talking about this book. Why? It is imperishable. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all scripture is inspired. Greek word for inspired. Theos noustos, which literally means God breathed. All scripture has the breath of God and God's breath has life. (laughs) 
So I want you to understand, I love reading, but dear Christ follower, don't spend more time reading other books and other books about the book than you actually do the book. Because those other books don't have life, this one does. Get in this book. It's enduring. It is enduring. It is. En- I love the story of the French philosopher Voltaire. Voltaire got up one day and he announced to hundreds of people, in a hundred years, the Bible will be irrelevant. Not long after saying that, he died. When he died, the French put his house up for auction. You know who bought his house? The French Bible Society. They moved into his house and started printing off thousands upon thousands upon thousands of books in the house of the very one who said the word of God was irrelevant. It is the epitome of arrogance for a fleeting, transient, about-to-die person to criticize the eternal word of God. This book, it is enduring. It lasts forever. And what is Peter telling us? Peter is saying, get in this book. Now, some of you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. You're here. And you're saying, I don't know about all this Bible stuff. And I don't know if I can trust it. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I can, I can depend on it. I want you to consider this. This book is authored by about 40 different authors. For the most part, except for a handful of them, two or three maybe, they don't talk to each other. From the time the first one starts writing until the time the last one starts writing, in authorship, 1,500 years go by. Moses doesn't talk to John. Paul doesn't talk to Ezekiel. But not once does it disagree. They all point to the same person, Jesus Christ. What other book can make that claim? It's like me coming to uh, all 50 governors of all 50 states here and saying, we're going to put together a national monument. I'm not going to tell you what the monument is, but I want each state to make a contribution to this monument. A few weeks later, each state sends in their contribution. And lo and behold, my mind is blown because when I put all the 50 pieces together, it makes a perfect image of the Statue of Liberty. Now, if we saw that, we would go, no way. Someone was overseeing that. Someone was overseeing and directing that project. Friends, it's even more unlikely that 40 different authors, 1,500 years, would all point to the same person, Jesus Christ. Likewise, we say, no way, someone's overseeing it. And I would say, you're exactly right. Someone did oversee it. His name is God and the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1 says this word, For no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why does this book have life? Because this book ultimately isn't John's ideas or Jeremiah's ideas or Paul's ideas or Peter's ideas. It is the breath of the living God. So we get this word inside of us. Now here's the punchline. Let's go home on this. Why does God give us this word? Does he give it so you can just stuff more information in your brain? No. Paul says, excuse me, Peter says, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this is as deep as this message is going to get. Verse 22 is what we would call in literary terms. Hang in there with me. It's called a chiastic structure. It's as deep as it's going to get. 
A chiasm are two like statements. There's typically a bookend statement that's similar to the other bookend statements, and then the two middle statements are similar. Now, in a chiastic structure, the emphasis is always, always, always not on the bookend statements, but on the middle statements. Look at verse 22. Here's the bookend statement. Having purified your souls. That's at the top. Look at the end statement. From a pure heart. See the theme of purity? Now, look at the middle statements. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly. Pure, love, love, pure. What's the emphasis? Love. So that the word of God is given to us to make us pure, but the emphasis is to take us somewhere, which is love, 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 love. In other words, the word of God is given to us always for ethical reasons. In other words, the word of God is always given to us, as my grandmama used to say, it's supposed to have shoe leather on it. It's supposed to transform how you walk, how you act, how you treat other people. That's what the word of God does. Unfortunately, for so many Christians, we treat the word of God as if it's some ride at an amusement park, like a roller coaster. You know, you get on a roller coaster, it's exhilarating. The, you see things you haven't seen before all the way up top and you take the deep drop and it goes fast and it twists and it turns and you have joy, but then you get off the roller coaster pretty much right where you started. You haven't gone anywhere. Unfortunately, that's how the word of God is treated by so many Christians. Great perspective, great insight, exhilarating, joyful, but you haven't gone anywhere. You're right back where you started. You haven't grown. You haven't matured. You haven't gotten better. No, the word of God's not to be like a ride in an amusement park. It's more like a ski lift. I went to China not too long ago, and I was doing some work over there, and I had a day off, and I got to go to the Great Wall of China. And the section of the Great Wall of China that I went to, you could only access it by a ski lift. So I got in, me and this buddy of mine, they strapped us in, and man, we started off on this ride, and we're going straight up and out, and we're seeing things we've never seen before, we're having enjoyment, but then about a half mile later, it drops us off at our destination. Yes, we had enjoyment, yes, we had different perspectives, yes, we saw things we didn't see before, but when we got off, we had actually advanced. Friends, that's what the Word of God's supposed to do. How is it supposed to advance you? The Bible says you are to love, love. Now, if there's ever a word that's somewhat irredeemable in our culture, it's the word love. We, we just use this word all the time. I love this kind of food or I love this person or we've got songs like Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You or, you know, uh, LTD. Y'all may not remember them. Love Ballad. Some of us remember them. They were played at our wedding. That was what we danced to. Uh, anyway, so um, you got all these songs, right? But what does it mean to love? Tragically, in our world, most people use the word love interchangeably with lust. And when I say lust, I'm not talking sexually, although that's part of it. The idea of lust really means to take, to consume. 
That, that really I'm looking at you as it relates to what you can give me. It's not how the Bible uses love. In fact, the Greek word for love in our text is the word philadelphos, from which we get our word Philadelphia from. It, it speaks of a selfless kind of love most seen among siblings. Now, let's talk about siblings for a minute. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly enjoy my siblings all the time. Okay, can I get an amen in the house? Am I the only one? Now, if you sit next to your sibling, don't say anything. All right. But my siblings ain't a walk in the park all the time. You know, we, we just we just did a, our first big family vacation with me and all my siblings, my parents, nieces, nephews. You know, we spent a week together. I'm going a week. You know, typically we got that three day rule. You know what I'm saying? So we get on each other's nerves and they would say the same thing about me. We get on each other's nerves and we talk about each other. You know, now you better not ever talk about them. Now I talk about them, but I better ever catch you talking about one of my siblings. Why? We're family. We share DNA. There's certain stuff that doesn't, that you'll never know about my family. There's certain no fly zones. Why? We share DNA. We get on each other's nerves, but let one of them hit a tough time financially like one of them just did. We just rallied together. We pulled finances together and we closed ranks and we took care of them, even though they get why they're family and we're responsible from one another so that when I love it. Even though we may not like each other, we love each other and take care of each other, even though we get on each other's nerves. Now watch this. That's the word Peter uses to describe how you're to relate to the person sitting next to you who, like you, knows Jesus in church. We're family. So let me just, let me just go out there. We will get on each other's nerves. To be in Christ doesn't necessarily mean I like you all the time. We have our quirks. We have our idiosyncrasies. We have ways of relating to each other that just gets on our nerves. But guess what? We do share DNA. And that DNA is stronger than the natural DNA we share with our physical siblings. We share the DNA of Jesus Christ, which is a stronger bond than any physical blood that we could ever have with one another. And because that bond trumps physical bonds, we, we've got to feel responsible for each other. We've got to have each other's backs. The Christian army is the only army on the face of the earth that shoots its own wounded. You're my brother. You're my sister. So I'm not going to let you, just like in the natural, I'm not going to let you talk bad about my natural sister. I'm not going to let you talk bad about someone up in the church. I just, I just, none of this is in the manuscript. I just got to tell you, there is a sin running rampant in the church that we never deal with. It is the sin of gossip. And that nonsense has to stop. We got to stop gossiping about each other. We got to stop stabbing each other in the back. We got to stop kicking each other while we're down. We're family. Even if that family members of a different ethnicity than you. Now, if you're racist, I don't know what you're going to do when you get to heaven. If you get to heaven. 
God's going to have you bunking with a redeemed clan member. And you're going to have eternity to work that out. So you better start practicing now. The white man ain't your enemy. Japanese and Chinese may not get along out there, but in here you are sisters and brothers in Christ. I love the movie Antoine Fisher as we close. There's this scene right at the end of Antoine Fisher. He's been looking for his mama. And he finally finds her and they have this great talk. And Antoine just had all these issues, man, his anger issues. And he just never knew the love of his own mom. He gets finished talking to his mama, gets in the car, goes back, I think to a cousin's house or something. And he gets there and they open up and he's now hugging, hugging all of his family members for the first time, aunties and uncles. And he gets finished doing that. And then I don't know if you remember that scene where the dining room doors open up and there's a table full of food and one of the matriarchs of the family, maybe it was his Medea. She extends her hand and says, welcome. And for the first time he feels home. Abundant life. This is what this place is going to be. It's going to be a place that says, welcome. This is going to be a place that's going to love folk. Now, love doesn't pat you on the back and excuse and dismiss your sin. Love doesn't let you do what you want to do. Love has hard conversations. But when we love each other, we have each other's back. We don't talk bad about each other. We don't say nasty things about each other on social media. We got each other's back. Yeah, the songwriter had it right. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. We're siblings in Christ.